This is a Federal News Network podcast. The more compute-intensive manufacturing becomes, the more companies and their factories need cybersecurity protection. Now a new cyber roadmap is out from a group called the Cybersecurity Manufacturing Innovation Institute. The group is backed by the Energy Department, and joining me with more, the Institute's CEO, Howard Grimes. Mr. Grimes, good to have you with us. Glad to be here, Tom. Tell us more about the Institute, who comprises it, and what its purpose is here. The Institute is funded by the Department of Energy. There are 15 other what are called Manufacturing Innovation Institutes in the United States. Some of these are funded by the Department of Defense, some funded by the Department of Energy, like ours, and then there's the National Institutes of Standards and Technology, or NIST, also funds one. So they are all public-private partnerships and are groups or, or partnerships of both industry and the federal government and academia. So in that sense, you know, we're the only institute that's focused exclusively on cybersecurity of U.S. manufacturing and enabling via cybersecurity practices and innovations to make U.S. manufacturers the most competitive in a fiercely competitive global environment. Sure. And can you describe some of the companies that are members, the company side? Yeah, certainly. We have over 35 companies total. So just a subset of those I can mention here, General Electric, Lockheed Martin, Cisco, and many others. So Um, some household names. In addition to those what are called original equipment manufacturers or OEMs, you know, we also have a focus on small and medium manufacturers because they comprise about 98% of U.S. manufacturers and are part of the supply chain to the companies I just mentioned. And just out of curiosity for a cybersecurity focus, and you call the organization Simani, which is a sort of conglomeration of the words that make it up, why the energy department and not NIST or somewhere in commerce or DHS for that matter? Yeah, so it's very clear, actually. So the Department of Energy has been and is focused on increasing energy efficiency in a number of different areas, including U.S. manufacturing. Why do they have an interest in U.S. manufacturing? Well, if you think about it this way, the United States uses about 100 quads of energy a year. And of those 100 quads across the entire United States on an annual basis, 27 of those are used by U.S. manufacturers. So getting energy efficiency into the U.S. manufacturing and ecosystem ultimately saves an enormous amount of energy in the United States and thus why the focus of the DOE. Now, why cyber in that is because to save energy, you have to, and U.S. manufacturers are driving forward on this at amazing speed in the sense that they are digitizing their environments and ecosystems at two times the rate of any other industry in the world. But as they digitize those environments, they exponentially increase what we call the cyber attack surface area and the cyber attack volume. Traditionally, cybersecurity people talk only about the surface area, and that's because most cybersecurity is focused on the perimeter defense, keeping the bad guys out of your network. In manufacturing, there's both IT and OT, or operational technology networks. The OT comprises that volume factor that I spoke about. Sure. And increasingly, there is interconnection between the IT and the OT, which we've seen can introduce vulnerabilities 
versus, say, in the 1970s when operational technology was self-contained within a factory? Fair to say? Yeah, very fair to say. In fact, the security of the past was based on what we call air gapping that OT environment. In other words, no connectivity to it, but that is not efficient and has already dramatically begun to change. And there's now a convergence of IT and OT networks. And you're 100% right, that introduces new levels of cyber vulnerabilities into those operational and information technology levels. We're speaking with Howard Grimes. He's CEO of the Cybersecurity Manufacturing Innovation Institute. And for the Institute and federal funding and some of the companies you mentioned are major federal contractors. So the cyber issue is maybe several fold, including disruption of operations, but also the theft of intellectual property, which can be very damaging to competitiveness. Would that be a good way to describe the issues you're concerned with? Yeah, certainly. First, understand that U.S. manufacturing is the number one cyber attack target for what we call our nation-state adversaries. Those nation-state adversaries are sponsored by their home governments, and depending on the country that we're talking about, intellectual property can be the number one target of those nation-state-sponsored adversaries. So again, if you look across the board at all cyber attacks in the United States, close to 35% of them are leveled strategically against U.S. manufacturers, And of that, a large proportion are focused on IP theft. Now, keep in mind, we need to already think about what we call the post-quantum world. The reason for that is, is that in today's world, cryptographic keys are somewhat successful in thwarting the decryption of stolen data. But there are countries now that are focused entirely on stealing as much of our data as they possibly can because they're also investing heavily in quantum computing, which makes the current cryptographic keys obsolete. So the idea is steal the IP now, we'll decrypt it later. The IP theft is a major focus of the Institute and how we protect, again, U.S. manufacturers from that theft. Sure. And of course, NIST, I think, is about to or may have, by the time this airs, have chosen cryptographic algorithms for quantum types of applications. We're actually working with NIST on that also. Let's get to the roadmap that is just published. What's in it? Who is it intended for? And what's its purpose? Yeah, so the roadmap is the first roadmap of its kind focused on developing and outlining a multi-year, multi-stakeholder strategy for cyber securing U.S. manufacturing and in doing so making those manufacturers more productive more energy efficient, and obviously much more cyber secure than is currently possible. So the roadmap looks at different manufacturing sectors and outlines very detailed plans for how the Institute will go about putting those companies on a trajectory that, again, will result in increased efficiency of operations, increased productivity of operations, and also a significant cyber hardening of those operations all simultaneously. We talk about that as Epsilon or energy efficiency ROI. So instead of having cybersecurity being a financial black hole of investment, in a never-ending stream of additional firewalls and different approaches to network segmentation and the like, the Institute is about is really going back to the fundamental mathematics, the fundamental physics, and the fundamental engineering systems of systems designs 
so that we create new architectures that are far more superior than anything currently available. We work with companies today, of course, on what their needs are for today. But the resendataire of the Institute, if you will, is creating these new generation of, of architectures with embedded trusted integrity of supply chains and developing really novel innovations that introduce a whole new era, if you will, of cybersecurity. And the Defense Department has a gambit that they're trying to get off the ground, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program, CMMC. I'm sure a lot of your members and you are aware of that program. (laughs) Almost everybody's been thinking about that. Is there some harmonization between Simani's efforts and CMMC? Are you taking that into account in the roadmap that this could be a requirement coming down the pike? Yeah, absolutely. So not only are CMMC requirements out there, but you just mentioned NIST requirements are out there and various standards and agencies and entities have other approaches to standards for interoperability and the like. No, we are hyper aware of the CMMC requirements. And towards that end, I worked with the University of Texas system and specifically our home university, which is University of Texas at San Antonio, and worked with the Texas legislature to stand up what we call the Tex-Mex hub for Texas Times Manufacturing transformation hub. We're doing that in collaboration with the port at San Antonio, and we're standing up a workforce development hub at the port initially focused on delivery of CMMC training to manufacturers in the state of Texas. I've already initiated detailed discussions with the state of Virginia. George Mason University is one of our members, as well as Virginia Tech and Virginia Commonwealth. And so I've met with all of those universities to initiate a second training hub in the D.C. metro area. And we'll be moving out nationally from that. And initially, again, those training hubs will focus on the immediate need of the CMMC requirements and helping manufacturers understand the requirements and more specifically training them on how to meet those standards. Sounds like we're nearing convergence here. Howard Grimes is CEO of the Cybersecurity Manufacturing Innovation Institute. Thanks so much for joining me. You bet. We'll post this interview along with a link to the public version of the roadmap at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. 
And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Visor, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense. 
And I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. The world is always on, but you shouldn't be. Put junk sleep to bed. During Mattress Firm's Dream Sember sale, get a king for the price of a queen or a queen for a twin and save up to $700 on Sealy. Only at Mattress Firm.